Section 12 of Charles James Fox by Henry Offley Wakeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6 The India Bill, Part 2. At their head stood the respectable name of Lord Fitzwilliam. Among them was the able and subtle brain of Sir Gilbert Elliot. But one and all, they were essentially party men. They were the personal friends and the devoted adherents of the leaders of the coalition. What a lurid light was at once thrown upon the real designs of the ministers. Here was the first act of this unlimited patronage. Who were the men chosen out of all England as most fit to become dictators of India? Men who had served the country well? Who had proved themselves capable, just, and impartial administrators? men who had made the great problems of india their special study on the contrary men of whom nothing more was known than that they were personal friends of the ministers steady political adherents and the owners of valuable votes like master like man if fox and north used their patronage purely for the furtherance of party interests it was perfectly certain that the commissioners would follow in the same footsteps men saw rising before them the horrible spectre of a vast colossus of corruption clasping both england and india in its foul embrace under the shadow of which royal authority and popular independence and imperial development alike must wither and decay in order that on its shoulders sharing its crown of power it might support insecure but despicable dignity its twin children of the coalition burke was seen to have turned his back upon a lifetime devoted to economical reform fox was proved after all to be but a chip of the old block and men believed in the absolute truth of the current sarcasm that the bill was one to take away the crown from the head of george the third and put it upon that of fox Nevertheless, this wide extended distrust was more apparent without than within the walls of Parliament, and the bill would almost certainly have passed with substantial majorities in both houses had it not been for the extraordinary and unconstitutional action of the King. George III, following out his principle that he was not bound to give his confidence to ministers who had been forced upon him against his will, had from the first openly declared that he would get rid of the coalition directly an opportunity offered and had called upon the grenvilles to come to his aid the india bill gave him the desired opportunity and lord temple the head of the grenville family came forward as his agent on the first of december the critical division in the house of commons gave the ministers a majority of one hundred and fourteen on the same day lord temple and lord thurlow submitted a paper to the king in which they advised that every possible exertion should be made to throw out the bill in the house of lords on the ninth the bill was brought up to the lords and the second reading was fixed for the eighteenth in the meantime lord temple had an interview with the king who authorized him in writing to say on his behalf to the peers that he should consider every man who voted for the bill as his enemy called upon in this way by george the third to decide between himself and his ministers 
the majority of the lords not unnaturally adhered to the king and the bill was thrown out by a majority of nineteen on the same evening the ministers received an order from the king to deliver up their seals of office and the coalition ministry came to an end the dismissal of the ministry was by no means the end of the conflict it was merely the first blow struck by the king in a long war the real struggle was to come fox himself had fully expected some such sudden backfall and looked on the prospect of fighting his way back into office again with zest as a soldier and little misgiving as a general nor was he necessarily wrong bad generalship on his part and unexpected treachery on the part of the king had defeated him but it was quite possible that good generalship might not only retrieve the past but establish him more firmly than ever for the future so with the good humour which distinguished him he took his seat on the front opposition bench and waited events little dreaming that he would be there for nearly the rest of his life on the nineteenth of december pitt was appointed prime minister and on the twenty-second the house met again for business unfortunately it at once became apparent that good generalship was a gift which the opposition could not hope to enjoy as long as it remained under the leadership of fox it is almost incredible how deficient in insight into the state of affairs he showed himself to be he was now in the zenith of his power as an orator his special strength in debate lay in his quickness in seizing and dealing with the real pointed issue in the management of a debate he rarely made a mistake in the management of a political question he rarely avoided fatal blunders he had had quite sufficient experience of office to learn that in a system of parliamentary government a politician must consider not only what is desirable but what is possible and must make his policy coincide with the general good sense of the country yet through his love for abstract statesmanship or his personal predilections he continually allowed himself to get into wholly false relations with the country no great leader of modern times has been served so devotedly and has been loved so passionately as was fox yet none has ever led his followers so often into positions where victory was only possible by a miracle a general who fought all his battles on the model of dettingen would soon cease to rank high among tacticians a glance at the state of political thought in parliament and in the country at the time of the dismissal of the coalition will soon show how greatly fox misconceived the position of affairs in the house of lords as experience had just shown distrust of the principles of the coalition and deference to the wishes of the crown had become too strong for the ties of party which are always weaker in an hereditary than in a representative chamber the peers as a body were not likely to reverse their recent decision except under strong pressure from the house of commons fortified by a fuller appreciation of the danger attaching to unconstitutional conduct such as that of george the third and lord temple the house of commons was the stronghold of the opposition there fox reigned supreme a substantial majority followed his lead and was not likely to be wanting in fidelity to any policy which seemed to promise a speedy return to office 
yet any thinking man could easily see that it was not wise to stake too much upon the power and authority of the majority of the house of commons the house was nearly four years old it had been elected toward the end of the american war royal influence and corrupt practices had been freely resorted to to procure a majority for the king and lord north that majority was obtained at a time when the general opinion of englishmen was notoriously against the crown no one knew better than fox how opposed to the national sentiments was the house of commons in seventeen eighty why should it so greatly have changed its character in seventeen eighty four of the majority which fox and lord north directed against pitt the larger part no doubt were staunch and true whigs who had always followed the banners of fox whose fidelity was above suspicion but the rest whose presence was absolutely necessary on a division were the followers of lord north returned by corrupt influence to support the king's minister in seventeen eighty who partly from allegiance and partly from desire of office had joined the coalition in seventeen eighty three but who found themselves in a false and uncongenial position when in seventeen eighty four they were called upon to fight their way back to power over the prostrate bodies of the king and pitt their natural sympathies were with authority and they were not prepared to take part in a parliamentary revolution in the nation itself much prejudice had been excited by the india bill much sympathy was felt with the king upon whose counsels a ministry of so questionable a nature as the coalition had forced itself shocked by the coalition startled by the sweeping changes of the india bill men were not prepared at once to denounce the king and his boy minister and shout for the buff and blue they held their judgment in suspense distrustful of both parties persuadable by either but vaguely sensible that after all the king was the most honest man in the whole range of english political life if this was the state of public opinion fox's true policy was clear and distinct he ought to have applied himself heart and soul to persuade the nation that he was in the right neither side could win without the active support of the people the influence of the crown and the deference of the peers would not by themselves prevail over the will of the house of commons the house of commons by itself had not moral strength enough to stand against the power of the crown and of the peers the mutual war could at best only produce a deadlock the nation alone held the key to the puzzle if fox had boldly claimed the nation on his side welcomed an immediate appeal to the people explained to them the true greatness of his india scheme modified if necessary those parts most open to misconstruction proceeded at once against lord temple in parliament for his unconstitutional conduct and denounced to the nation the sinister revival of the personal interference of the crown as subversive of true parliamentary liberty he would probably have won the day at any rate he would have had his cause argued fairly on its merits before a tribunal of which on his own principles he was bound to approve the policy which he actually adopted was the exact opposite he determined to rely solely upon his majority in the house of commons 
and to force the will of the commons upon the king he showed the greatest dread of an appeal to the people procured an address to the king against the dissolution on the very first day on which the house met after the change of ministry and tried later to extort a promise from pitt that he would not advise a dissolution he suffered the extraordinary action of lord temple to go perfectly unchallenged in the teeth of a resolution of the house passed while the india bill was before the lords that to report any opinion of his majesty upon any bill in either house of parliament with a view to influence the votes of members is a high crime and misdemeanour and subversive of the constitution of this country having thus let the agent whom he could punish go scot-free he proceeded to attack the principal who was above his reach there was hardly a speech of his in the spring of seventeen eighty four which was not directed against the secret influence of the crown and the unconstitutional appointment of the ministers thus he narrowed the issue as much as possible to a duel between himself and george the third in which pitt stood forth as the defender of the crown he threw away the opportunity which the unconstitutional conduct of the king had given him by himself taking the equally unconstitutional line of attempting to interfere with the undoubted prerogative of the crown to dissolve parliament he threw away all the advantages which his position as leader of the popular party gave him by insisting on defending the narrow rights of a majority in one house and enabled his adversary to pose as the champion at once of king lords and people naturally therefore as the struggle increased in violence the nation began to declare itself more and more decidedly on the side of pitt and the king when the king took no notice of a vote of want of confidence when pitt did not resign and george did not dismiss him all that was left to fox was to refuse supplies and make government impossible but that could only render certain the dreaded dissolution and make the elections still more unfavourable so as time went on fox found himself in a more and more hopeless position the memory of the king's unconstitutional act faded away in the light of his own unconstitutional conduct the king adopting his own view of the situation entered the lists with him as a combatant and refused to take any notice of his addresses and resolutions the people trusted by pitt distrusted by fox naturally turned to their friends all that was left to fox in the political sphere was to stop the supplies and that he dared not do a policy of protest and protest alone was doomed to failure even the mechanical majority on which he had relied and for which he had sacrificed so much came to desert him and melt away at last the crash came on the eighth of march fox carried a representation to the crown by a majority of one only this was the end of the opposition dr johnson truly said that the question before the country was whether it would be ruled by the sceptre of george the third or by the tongue of fox on the twenty fourth of march the parliament was dissolved and fox had the mortification of seeing one of the most powerful parties ever gathered together under a minister hopelessly shattered to pieces by his own extraordinary blunders 
a shower of squibs and broadsides followed him in his discomfiture for political wit never spares the unfortunate dear carr is it true what i've long heard of you the man of the people they call you they call you how comes it to pass they're now grown so rash at the critical moment to leave you to leave you oh that cursed india bill arrah why not be still enjoy a tight place and be civil be civil had you carried it through oh ah that would just do then their charters we'd pitch to the devil the devil others not quite so good-tempered pointed to the political catastrophe as the natural and appropriate reward of a career conspicuous for want of moral principle when first young reynard came from france he tried to bow to dress to dance but to succeed had little chance the courtly dames among tis true indeed his wit hath charms but his grim fizz the point disarms and all were filled with dire alarms at such a beau garçon he left the fair and took to dice at brooks they were not so nice but cleared his pockets in a trice nor left a wreck behind nay some pretend he even lost that little grace he had to boast and then resolved to seize some post where he might raise the wind in politics he could not fail so set about it tooth and nail but here again his stars prevail nor long the meteor shone his friends if such deserve the name still keep him at a losing game bankrupt in fortune and in fame his day is almost done End of section twelve